Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in. Well, what a week it was last week and there's going to be an equivalent this week uh, with Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement. It's another of those moments which is described as pivotal. Let's see. Uh, I'll be reflecting on that in a moment, if that's okay, with all of you. And also, of course, we've got... um, I think this will be really interesting. In the COVID inquiry hearing, we hear from the scientists. When you hear this podcast, some of them will have spoken. And that too will be illuminating as a door is open wider. We knew a lot of what was going on because you could tell from the surface chaos of the government's response to COVID. But now more light is being Sean. And then, of course, uh, in the weeks following, we hear from Johnson & Co. Uh, So there's that and uh, many other things whirling around. This is a time when the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative need to gather regularly to delve deep and make sense of it all. Uh, Just a couple of notices talking of that precise theme. If you are on Patreon or subscribe to the Rock and Roll Politics version of Patreon, we are gathering together for an exclusive event on Thursday evening, the day after Hunt's autumn statement, where I think there will be a lot of politics being played out and a few surprises. Some of you will be listening to this afterwards. What I'm going to say on it, by the way, will be uh, timeless, will work whether you've heard it or not. So do subscribe to Patreon. There are loads of kind of other exclusive things in there, podcast series on strange cinematic general elections, political rivalries, uh, by-elections that have changed the course of history, all kinds of uh, timeless themes uh, that contextualise the state we're in at the moment. Prime Ministers we never had, turning points, I think. Anyway, lots of uh, bonus podcasts and other things as well. I got a bonus uh, kind of mat the other day, you know, to put cups of tea on. You can get rock and roll politics mugs. Anyway, do subscribe. It won't break the bank, uh, but it helps uh, the podcast go out and working with the legendary podmasters as I do. What else? Yeah, uh, the Christmas special, Rock and Roll Politics, is live at King's Place on Monday, December the 18th. We will have some fun that evening, but also delve deep on a year. It's a really interesting arc this year, I think. Uh, If you look at some of the themes in January compared with what actually then happened on many different levels, and then we'll be looking ahead to the election year, which is going to be intense and... Well, God, yeah, very interesting for all of us lot. So you can get your tickets from that on the King's Place website uh, and in the blurb for this uh, podcast. That will be uh, an epic but fun, hopefully, evening. You can combine the two, delving deep and having having a bit of a laugh, you know what I mean? Anyway, enough of that. We're going to go to your questions. The questions are flying in. They're all brilliant and illuminating. Um, I'm going to return some of the questions that I didn't get to uh, last time, um, but we're gathering quite regularly. Oh, yeah, for some of you who don't subscribe, you might have missed the second one. Uh, the, we got together again 
uh, on Friday, Thursday, if you're on Patreon. That's the other thing. You get the podcast a bit earlier and ad-free on Patreon. Uh, so do subscribe. And then if there are extras, because so much is going on at the moment, I'm not pledging to do one this week. It's quite a busy week for me, and I know all of you, but there might be. So if you subscribe, it just arrives as if by magic on the feed wherever you get the podcast. I, I kind of love it. In the olden days, it used to be newspapers arriving on the doorstep. You know, oh, yeah, let's run down the stairs and get those newspapers. So do subscribe and tell friends and family to subscribe, and then uh, we will all be gathering together regularly in this period of high drama. Last week, I argued that um, the madness of Rwanda and boats was partly about the way it's going to suck up so much political energy in the weeks and months to come. And since then, you've already seen newspapers dominated by it. Some of the newspapers were uh, splashing on it on the day I'm recording this uh, podcast still. This is all about, if you step back a kind of millimetre from the noise, uh, about the government, theoretically anyway, seeking the right to fly some people on the boats out to Rwanda. It won't so solve the boat crisis. Um, the government hopes it will be a deterrent. There's no evidence of that so far. That's what it's all about. There will still be, they won't, they won't fly out all the boat people. Um, and uh, None of it will probably happen anyway, but the energy is going to be sucked out. And I was pointing out that uh, if everything else in Britain was working well, it would still be mad, but there would at least be space for the madness. But nothing is working well in Britain at the moment. And yet we have an autumn statement from Jeremy Hunt where the whole focus is on tax cuts as if this casts a kind of magical spell over Britain. If you look at Britain's problems, uh, no growth, poor productivity, the public services in a dire state, infrastructure uh, creaking uh, with a degree of fragility, which is itself contributing to the wider problems of growth and productivity, labour shortages uh, in uh, key sectors, especially the leisure sector, Wherever I go, I don't know if you find the same. You find kind of pubs closing, restaurants closing, and so it's not about uh, kind of lack of demand because a lot of people, you go to some restaurants, they're packed, but there are labor shortages. You can't get the people. That's partly to do, as the government would say, with uh, uh, COVID and people deciding they don't want to work anymore. It's partly to do with the Brexit negotiated by Johnson and Frost. Those are clearly the challenges uh, facing the country and therefore a governing party. But the Conservative Party has ceased to be a reasoned or rational governing party for some time. Uh, I would root it back to the uh, early to mid-1990s when, uh, after the fall of Margaret Thatcher, Britain falling out of the exchange rate mechanism in September 1992, coinciding with the Maastricht Treaty going through Parliament, and then Conservative MPs discovering a disdain for John Major, even though he had won the election in 1992 against the odds. Uh, that's when the party began to change. And it has now become 
the difficult party to lead, much more difficult than Labour, although last week illustrated <coughs> Labour's capacity to um, rebel in the Parliamentary Labour Party. But the Tory party is now in a position where you have a deputy chairman, this uh, uh, Lee Anderson, also a presenter on GB News, uh, basically saying that the government should break the law to send a few people out to Rwanda. He's not sacked. Uh, the, the bar for sacking is crazy, you know. Um, so someone can say that, and uh, uh, Rishi Sunak, who appointed this guy in his confused political leadership, um, you, you, you know, he just kind of semi-defended what this guy said. And there are a thousand more examples. We all know about that. But now the focus uh, for a bit, although I can tell you this, the boats will be lurking in the background or the flights to Rwanda will be lurking in the background while the focus is on the economy too. Now it's about tax cuts, this uh, curious uh, obsession with tax cuts. Uh, as a solution to everything. And for a start, it shows the lack of memory in a political party. Sometimes memory can be very potent in a political party, um, often distorting what a political party decides to do, but nonetheless, it's based on a sense of the recent past. So, for example, Thatcherism arose from a view about the failings of Heath and that final gasp of a panic-stricken but still relatively principled one-nation Toryism, uh, which was tested uh, in 1970 to February 1974 by industrial and economic turmoil. And in direct reaction to that, a path was carved for Margaret Thatcher. Now, in theory, Sunak is a reaction to Liz Truss, which is talk about the recent past. It was only a year ago that we had uh, the Kwarteng budget and uh, all hell broke loose. And all hell bro broke loose in the areas that Liz Truss and Kwarteng worship, the markets. Uh, it wasn't some sort of North London communist elite uh, challenging that budget, the markets hovered and attacked the budget within minutes of it uh, being delivered. And yet now the Telegraph, the Mail, many, many Tory MPs are crying out for tax cuts. Now, of course, uh, Sunak and Hunt cannot return to the trust revolution and say they've been defined against it. But nonetheless, these two fiscal conservatives who have said that inflation is their priority uh, are being forced into hailing tax cuts because of the state of the Tory party. And the tax cuts will be framed not for what's necessarily best for the economy, but for pleasing Tory MPs and trying to get front page headlines from their newspapers uh, that they dare to hope in number 10 will change the dial in, uh, in terms of opinion polls. It cannot be 
overestimated the degree to which opinion polls uh, frame British politics and politics in other democracies too. So Keir Starmer, even though he's had his troubles recently, will awake to these astonishing poll leads, uh, some of them implying a victory greater than New Labour in 1997. And he has become uh, more confident. I don't know if you heard his interview with the, uh, uh, oh, I won't mention it, some other silly little diddly podcast. You know, it was a long-form interview, not the kind of Laura Koonsberg, eight minutes, rush, 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 where nothing develops or can develop. And he came across as very confident after a tricky week. Um, And unsurprisingly, if you wake up to these opinion polls, uh, even though you remain uh, probably over-fearful about could this in the end be a terrible 1992 situation rather than uh, those rare occasions when Labour win, you are confident. And Rishi Sunak, who has led a pretty charmed life, now finds himself working 18-hour days and waking up to find opinion polls not moving. And so, you know, because he doesn't really understand politics, no reason why he should, he's relatively new to it, and he's not a natural. Uh, His milieu is Goldman Sachs and that world, which is not a political world. And being in the Treasury, doing a furlough scheme is very different from politics as it normally plays out. And so it's really interesting with Sunak. If you remember, none of you will, and I know you follow politics assiduously. In August, Number 10 had planned a detailed grid. Uh, Each week, there was going to be a campaign on a different theme. Uh, It was absurd from the NHS, even though there was nothing good to cling to. I think there was a week with the boats, and the only thing that happened is they had to find a boat to put some of the boat people on and then remove them from that boat uh, because of... um, uh, it was not ready for various reasons, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Anyway, of course, by the end of August, the opinion polls hadn't moved at all. Then he hoped the party conference would make a difference. And instead, the party conference had a kind of Roman Empire decadence about it. Nigel Farage dancing with uh, Pretty Patel and uh, a speech from Sunak that was surreal, frankly announcing the end of HS2, which was planning to go to Manchester in Manchester, and a party conference speech without a theme, a clearly identifiable narrative. As far as there was one, it was about him being changed. Then there was the reshuffle, which brought back Cameron, a symbol of this long period of one-party rule. So each time he awoke, hoping that something he had done would uh, narrow the opinion poll lead, including the reshuffle, by the way, and nothing moves. In that context, you start throwing a dice, and even if Hunt and Sunak don't believe it will necessarily work in terms of the economy, um, tax cuts are what the Tory party, not learning from history, cling to. And so tax cuts is what we will be getting, or if you've heard this after Wednesday, what you know we've got. And yet, to go back to that theme, the National Health Service, uh, one of the themes is people not working at the moment, and that is a problem, and that does need to be dealt with. New Labour had quite an effective scheme about pathways uh, to work, uh, which they introduced in uh, 97. 
And Brown rightly made his kind of themes around this, making work pay, helping those genuinely unable to work, etc. But dealing with uh, those who can work by trying to get them into work with pathways to power. Uh, Rachel Reeves will say, or will have said by the time you hear this, that when you've got millions waiting to be treated by the NHS, uh, you deal with that, and then they will be fit enough to get back to work. Wherever you turn, the fundamentals demand investment. Uh, Now, of course, we've talked about this endlessly on the podcast, reform matters, but you have to be precise about what you mean by reform. But so does investment. Although the tax burden, in inverted commas, a term which is really dangerous because it implies something painful to be born painfully when it is the means by which we uh, improve everything, if spent wisely, not a halfpenny to be misspent. And wherever you turn, you know, it's very interesting looking at the sort of implied hopes of a Labour government, uh, not spelt out because they fall into tax and spend traps too quickly, but Bridget Phillipson's visions about uh, preschool uh, facilities uh, on a scale being envisaged at the moment in Australia, which helped the Labour Party win in Australia. The recognition that the NHS has to be revived in a way that makes people well enough to get to work. Um, So the two are interconnected. Levelling up to mean anything must mean improved transport in the north of England, in most parts of the country, where it is so unreliable and rickety, uh, which goes to infrastructure. And improved infrastructure will help grow the economy and improve productivity. They are all interconnected, but that's where All focus should be, but instead it's tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts. As if, as I say, it's a kind of magical potion that will revive uh, an economy starving for investment. And uh, I know the so-called tax burden is relatively high compared with recent years in the UK, still relatively low compared with the rest of Europe. And we return to that observation from Roy Jenkins, so brilliantly conjures up the conundrum of British politics and the British economy, that voters want US levels of taxation and European levels of public services. Now, New Labour and Gordon Brown tried to square that dilemma by taxing stealthily. But because he did quite a few of those stealth taxes, he became famous for taxing stealthily, which is a contradiction in terms. It's like Harold Wilson becoming well-known for being devious. Well, if people know you're devious, you can't be devious. And somehow, rather, that's got to be squared. And uh, public investment is urgently required, but the focus, tax cuts. We'll know so much more by the end of uh, the week on that and some of the other issues whirling around us at the moment. Um, But I'm going to return now to your brilliant questions. And if you want to join in our never-ending discussion, uh, you know, Bob Dylan does a never-ending tour. We have a never-ending discussion uh, with audiences on the scale of uh, Dylan. Anyway, it's steverick13 at iCloud.com. 
Lance Brindred uh, writes, uh, greetings from Suffolk, where I'm still loving the podcast. Thank you very much. Lance wonders uh, whether apparently he sent this in before, but uh, you know there are so many at the moment, so I'm well done for persisting, sending it in again, because you're, you're on, you're live, Lance on the podcast. I was wondering what you thought about the alignment of Cummings and Sunak. I keep hearing that Dominic Cummings' motivation for his action against Johnson are simply revenge, but Cummings seems much more strategic than that. He's managed to engineer two campaign victories with Brexit and the Johnson election. Is his primary motivation here trying for a hat-trick in attempting to get Sunak promoted to Prime Minister and uh, re-elected, perhaps, with him in a key role? No, I don't think that's what's going on, uh, Lance, with uh, Dominic Cummings. He was a fan of uh, Sunak's. He made him Chancellor when he was running the country and forced Johnson to sack Javid. Again, an astonishing moment where a special advisor sacks a Chancellor um, and uh, Johnson just accepted it. But he now is distant from the Tory party in all its manifestations, Cummings. Uh, He remains a a curiously eccentric figure, sometimes with really interesting insights. And I say he's a Tory interested really partly in the role of the state and how it delivers. But he's also uh, angry and can't uh, he, can, he can deal charmingly with some people, but clearly not with others. Um, and I don't think he's in any way connected at the moment uh, to the fate of Sunak. I think he's going to set up his own party, not the only one, probably. Thank you, Lance, uh, in Suffolk. Uh, Tom Webb in North London asked an interesting question. Tom, if you're in North London, you've got to come to King's Place on um, uh, December the 18th. You can walk there. He was wondering what I think about Newsnight uh, and the apparent forthcoming death of Newsnight, certainly in its uh, current form. Um, My own view is that to lose it would be a tragedy, but on the other hand, it does seem a little redundant when so much news is covered so excellently elsewhere on um, newer and fresher, with newer and fresher formats. I can't remember the last time I felt the need to watch it. That's interesting. In an age of never awake, uh, in an age of never-ending BBC cuts, would it be better just to put it out of its misery altogether than to try and reinvent it as another panel discussion show, as is rumoured? Yeah. Oh, uh, Tom said, I work for a London university, um, so I'm not sure I can add to the cooperative in the same way as the bakers, builders and doctors who listen, and therapists and many others, uh, Tom, who are helping us out, cyclists. We've now got a cyclist working out nice cycle routes for us all. He says, but I can provide a lot of advice for anyone who needs it about the current state of higher education, a bit of a niche perhaps. Well, it doesn't give such immediate pleasure as the bakers, the builders, and the, uh, don't forget, white van man, Andy, the driving everyone who wants to be driven or so on. But it could be useful. You know, a lot of students uh, listen to this. Vis-a-vis Newsnight, uh, first of all, you know, the, the cuts will go in the wrong places and will be badly handled. The BBC is very poorly managed at the moment, and it is still overmanaged. Um, and that leads to problems, as we've kind of seen in a way, in a very on a bigger scale in the COVID inquiry, where lines of command are so blurred and overlapping, um, it's quite cl- difficult to identify precisely who is responsible for what. And that will be, I think, one of the findings of the COVID inquiries about the workings of government then and more generally. 
obviously in COVID, we had the specifics of a wholly uh, disastrous prime minister and chaos arising from that. But there is structural chaos rooted in uh, government. And there is in the BBC as well, where there are layers of this management and their connection directly with the output is not wholly clear. But I do think the BBC faces big challenges uh, with um, uh, the varying formats from podcasts to YouTube to all the other ways in which uh, people can get uh, kind of more, just, just more space to develop ideas and arguments. So my big thing about the BBC is they're not biased to the left or right. They do carry certain assumptions, some of them, on that front. But um, it's, the bias against letting things breathe is a problem. I would be okay, actually, about uh, an intelligent discussion program uh, instead of the current format of Newsnight. I mean, I, I think money could be saved elsewhere and they could keep Newsnight. But if they are going to do it, a, a discussion program would be fine and closer, I think, to meeting the demands of people. But I know what will happen uh, if they do have a discussion program. It will be overproduced and there will be too many guests and it will be rushed and there will be too many themes um, and it won't work. Um, but it is, I think, a problem now when, as you were saying, you can get news anywhere to kind of say, oh, yeah, it's it, they must keep Newsnight in its current form. I mean, I, I don't watch it very often and there are some great people on it. Um, and Mark Urban, who's been there a long time, is a real authority They've been struggling to get interesting guests for a long time, for example. Um, and uh, it is quite hard to sort of mount an unqualified defence for keeping it. But so far, they've made such a mess of the cuts. I mean, they've basically given Sky a monopoly over news now with the rolling news, with Sky News. Um, the news channel on the BBC is this merged thing with BBC World, and it's a mess. And I'll tell you what, I think the decision will be made quite soon that it is a mess, and it will be impossible to identify who decided to do it. And if they do, that person will probably be promoted. Kind of responsibility and accountability within the BBC is an issue. As individuals, many of these people in these management structures are great and intelligent and engaged but they are part of a structure where responsibility is so blurred you watch it they will have to do something about this merged news channel i've spoken to people on it they're in despair but whoever decided it will not be held to account and that leads to other mistakes anyway thank you tom david perkins oh david you're talking about the covid inquiry has demonstrated fulsomely why political parties should not be the ones to decide who is suitable to stand for public office at any level of government. It's interesting to see that Michael Crick is investigating the selection process of the political parties and seems to be coming to a similar conclusion. Keep on rocking. We are rocking on a daily basis, uh, David. Uh, yeah, well, got to be careful about this. Um, elected ministers... And they are elected in, in the sense that they win their seats and then a party leader as prime minister chooses them to be in the cabinet. I think do have to have some connection, public officials who have power, because in the end, it's the elected people who are accountable to voters. And so 
it, it, it's just a case of getting the right people elected. And in that sense, Michael Crick is quite interesting. He's following the way uh, local parties are selecting candidates. He is very worked up about the degree of centralised interference. But if local parties are given complete freedom to elect candidates, uh, select candidates, they will nearly always be local people who might not be suitable for the challenges of cabinet jobs. And then, how do you get good government? Um, so that's another issue, but thank you very much. Henry says, to me, the Johnson administration is the product of many failures in political culture amongst ministers, journalism, and indeed the public. Yeah, the public play a big part in it. We've got to say it. Politicians can never say it. But surely voters should take a bit more care when reflecting on who they're going to vote for. Anyway, back to Henry. I do wonder if one of the uh, issues revealed so far by the COVID inquiry is that of the civil service itself. I don't want to invoke the reform fairy, but I think there is something we need to do to make sure that this doesn't happen again within the civil service as well as politically. Yeah, well, Henry, I think I covered that in the discussion about the BBC. Um, I, I agree. Um, I think it raises issues about responsibility, accountability, clarity of role, um, and, and many other things. And I hope, though doubt, that the uh, COVID inquiry leads to civil service reform. But as you say, reform is a lazy, ubiquitous word. What form should it take? Harry Lewis says, uh, I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm great, Harry. Hope you're okay. Uh, enjoying the podcast. Thank you very much. He said, I like asking questions about underexplored people and events which fascinate me. Yeah, well, that's a good theme. Um, we, we kind of try and focus on the podcast on kind of underexplored themes sometimes. And he said, I wondered if you could talk about Michael Howard's underexplored time as leader of the opposition and the dark 2005 election. He seems to be a figure who is forgotten as leader, as he lost pretty handily to Blair. But is there not a case to be made that he played a huge role in solidifying the power of the more nationalist, Thatcherite voices in the party? In his resigning speech, he talked about change and the need to listen to young people about their worries, yet broadly championed the same ideology the Conservative Party had always championed since 1979, uh, Thatcherism. Did he, more so than William Hague or Ian Duncan Smith, have a bigger impact on the prevailing power of Thatcherism after he settled the party down in 2005? Separately, do you remember covering the 2005 election and why it was so dark in nature? Uh, huge, huge thanks for the great podcast. Yeah, well, that, that, my kind of question, Harry. Uh, so thank you. Uh, yeah, I think Michael Howard is quite an important figure. Again, you know, the importance of memory in politics. He took over. Uh, they got rid of Ian Duncan Smith. The Tory parliamentary party moved against him. And without a leadership contest, uh, Michael Howard uh, got in. And uh, he, he, he played a really important role in uh, keeping that party on the road. I think they were heading for decimation under Ian Duncan Smith's leadership, who, uh, which was being, apart from anything else, mocked internally and by Tory papers. 
Blair would have slaughtered Ian Duncan Smith in an election which would have put the Tory recovery even further back. Michael Howard, who had been around for a long time, uh, professionalised the operation. But you are right, he was a figure on the right of the party, absolutely cleared the path. He wanted, wanted uh, Cameron or to take over, uh, recognising in David Cameron a fellow kind of uh, Thatcherite, but younger, and, and a very plausible uh, advocate. And he, he did all of that. Uh, 2005, uh, England, more people in England voted Conservative than they did for Tony Blair. And although they lost again, it was not by such a big margin that a win the following time was impossible. And it was a dark election. That was partly because it was the post-Iraq question. And so there was a lot of stuff about Blair the liar, Blair the war criminal. But this was the time, I mentioned it last week, uh, that the Conservatives were focusing in on immigration. Michael Howard's opening speech uh, of the election campaign was on immigration. And as I said, they were proposing to send people to an island, uh, asylum seekers. Immigration, something different, of course, but he was proposing to control that as well. Although, remember, we were still in Europe then, and he wasn't proposing to leave the European Union, although he became a supporter of Brexit later on. And I remember interviewing Tony Blair during that election, and he was reflecting on what a dark election it was, uh, the kind of uh, the focus on, in effect, in Verticomus foreigners, this issue of trust and lying and so on. Uh, so it was a dark election, and uh, Labour were returned. You could feel this kind of lack of enthusiasm, really. But they got a third term, and uh, Keir Starmer would, you know, would love the equivalent. So you don't not winning a third term, but it, it was dark, it was subdued, and the moment it was over, uh, there were some Labour MPs calling for Tony Blair to announce a time when he should go. Uh, so it was a kind of very dark time. But Michael Howard, in a way, saved the Conservative Party. And you're quite right, rooted it on that Thatcherite right. Uh, where it has been uh, ever since with the brief qualifications of Theresa May uh, hailing the role of the state, Boris Johnson in his bewildered, confused, superficial support for higher public spending. Um, but with Rishi Sunak, it's back to Thatcherism. Michael Howard did it for them because I think if they'd been slaughtered for a third time in 2005 under Ian Duncan Smith, there the would have been a kind of existential crisis, which would have involved a deeper rethink, perhaps. Peter Fanning. I'm catching up on the Patreon podcast while travelling in comfort through the French countryside in a TGV. Everything works here. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for telling us that. I enjoyed your podcasts on the Healy-Ben rivalry. Yeah, that's it. For those of you who aren't, and why not, uh, members of the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics, the current series of bonuses is looking at political rivalries, and the one for October uh, was that between Healy and Ben. My question is whether Tony Benn was an early cakeist, as he appeared to refuse to recognise any constraints on the decisions of the electorate or of a government elected by them. 
all in constant contrast to the pragmatic Healy who dealt with the world as he found it. On constraints, I don't recognise the HM Treasury that you sometimes describe, perhaps with your tongue firmly in your cheek. No, actually, Peter, I don't think on the Treasury front I've got my tongue in cheek. I have on some fronts during the podcast. I think I might slightly exaggerate the degree to which, say, I don't know, uh, our new cyclist member will uh, really enhance cycle rides to everyone listening, and maybe slightly, only slightly tongue-in-cheek with that kind of thing. But I, on the Treasury, I do think they they are a, sometimes a suppressive constraint. Uh, anyway, there is usually one Treasury minister, this is back to Peter, with responsibility for raising money and around 150 ministers across government who are trying to spend it. There are consequences if government expenditure gets out of control or is seen to get out of control by those whom HMT depends on to fund its daily cash needs. And by the way, uh, Peter worked in the Treasury. So we've got, we've got loads who used to work in the Treasury uh, uh, listening to the podcast, which is great uh, because... It's very interesting to have that perspective. Um, on uh, Tony Benn, I don't think he was a cakeist. Uh, the cakeist uh, politics is the most shallow and superficial. You know, Boris Johnson saying you can have tax cuts and huge increases in public spending is uh, uh, cakeist. Tony Benn was a curious figure in that he he had really he had a capacity for insight um but also a capacity to misread an electorate um he always used to say when he was justifying giving much more power to labor party members people like brian warden in interviews would say to him but what about the wider electorate the party members aren't representative of the wider electorate. And Tony Benn would say, with respect, Brian, uh, the ultimate democratic choice is with the voters. Because Benn was always being accused of being Stalinist. He wasn't that. He was obsessed with democracy, actually. But the flaw was um, he, he, he kind of completely misread uh, the way the electorate would respond to some of the things he was uh, proposing. And he did have a kind of regard for the party membership. Uh, I used to go sometimes when he was making speeches, and he was always witty, charming, polite, uh, and say, uh, just an incredibly mesmerizing orator. But I'd look round the audience, and there were people full of anger and impatient anger. And I thought, God, if, if, if people across the electorate saw that lot they wouldn't say oh yeah i want to be part of that so he kind of misread the impact on the wider electorate but i think that's a different thing from cakeism on the treasury front you're absolutely right there are lots of spending ministers in a cabinet but the treasury is more powerful than all of them put together you must know that peter having worked there um so i think the power of the treasury and their wariness especially of capital projects they were against hs2 from the beginning uh instead of saying let's do it but let's make sure every penny is spent properly uh, and let's follow and monitor the spending of this money on a daily basis and hold people to account where ben was quite sharp was on the word accountability and it's a key word in britain because too many do things without being fully held to account, as we were discussing earlier in relation to BBC management and the civil service. So 
I do think treasury orthodoxy is a problem sometimes, but I take your point that the dynamic is always uh, uh, ministers and spending departments putting in bids and then the treasury having to work out its impact on the overall economy. Um, But thank you very much. And thank you to all of you. There are tons more. I'm going to make a note of where I've stopped uh, and try and get a few more in when we gather again uh, next time. There was one I really wanted to get to uh, from uh, uh, White Van Andy about um, the impact of Keynes, Keynesianism. Um, If I'm going to quickly... No, no, I'm going to save it because uh, Keynes is a huge figure. We really need a Keynes-type figure now. Uh, He was right on so much and had an impact on so much. Uh, And now, you know, it goes back to that thing about uh, the autumn statement. Oh, uh, tax cuts, tax cuts. Is it, you know, where's the depth in all of this? And loads of other questions as well. But um, I think we've done enough uh, for uh, today. If it's okay with all of you, we will return very soon. So do subscribe. And of course... If you subscribe, uh, I mean, subscribe to this podcast, you just get it uh, as if by magic it flies in from nowhere. Uh, It's literally nowhere. But if you subscribe to Patreon, I'll see you all on uh, Thursday night where we can delve deep in a live session together. That will be so good. And thank you so much for listening. I say another epic few days coming up. Uh, Let's follow it very closely and uh, get together very soon to make sense of it all. Thanks so much. Bye.